Welcome to Boots Off Log On, a podcast where we talk all things farm business. A show about the business of farming, bringing you insights and wisdom from the leaders in farm business, helping you minimise risk and maximise return on all your hard work. I'm David and I'll be your host for the show. Welcome again, everybody, to another episode of Boots Off Log On. Today, I'm talking with long-term farm business advisor, Paul McKenzie. Paul is the founder of West Australian-based Agrarian Management. He has over 29 years of experience providing advice in farm business management, corporate governance, risk mitigation, finance, grain marketing, staff recruitment, and succession planning. Paul is also the chair or director of a number of ASX research, large private and sovereign wealth agri-companies, and he's an enthusiastic farmer. In this episode, I speak to Paul about the hot topic of conversation in all rural gatherings at the moment, land prices. We discuss the drivers of land values, the long-term trends of land values in Australia, and the historic context of these latest increases the impact of monetary policy, succession, productivity and scarcity on these values. And Paul has some contrarian yet positive observations about the level of Australian farm debt and its relationship to on-farm productivity gains. This is a very interesting, informative and timely conversation. I've known Paul for over 20 years and have had many insightful conversations with him, learning a lot each time. This conversation is no exception. Enjoy. So welcome, mate. Good to be with you, David. <laughs> no worries. Now, you and I have spoken many times on many topics over the years, all interesting, but today I'd really like to start a topic that you and I discussed briefly the other day, and it's a topic that's on really the lips of every rural gathering at the moment around Australia, which is land prices. Indeed. You and I were doing the same reading, but I was looking back on the Rural Bank Australian Farm Values Report, which I think, was that released just recently, I think, was uh, it, Paul? Yes, uh, I think around six weeks ago or thereabouts. Yeah, so it makes for some pretty interesting reading, but I think it's more confirmation of what people have are experiencing on the ground. So this report said the median price per hectare of farmland has gone up 20% in 2021, so that's up to $7,087 a hectare nationally, that is. Mm-hmm. Now, WRE up 36.3%, which is massive. <laughs> And Queensland, 31.3. So they're, they're not very much better. Well, depends if you're buying or selling, I suppose. Largest year-on-year increase in dollar terms for 27 years, the report said. And the biggest percentage rise since 2005, which is massive. Yep. Last five years, 12% growth. Uh, that's where you need to put your money in a 20-year annual compound growth rate of 8.4%. So, you know, you can comment on this on the minute, but we had a, you know, compared to, say, property, or which is urban property, which everyone puts as the benchmark, I think, on the on the news every night, which is only 5.4% over the last 20 years, and the ASX um, 200, only 4%. So everyone should have taken their money out of their investment properties in Perth and put it in farmland, I reckon. Now, last month, we were talking about this but without all those beautiful stats, and you said to me, this land selling season is going to be different, David. Can you elaborate, Paul? Why is it going to be different? Well, um, thanks, David. I think, could I just start, though, by 
sort of unpacking a little bit of the stat. Yeah, definitely. About the West Australian broad acre in particular. <clears throat> Pardon me. It is, look, a 36% increase, as you said, year on year last year. That was on top of a 19% increase the previous year. And it's the fourth consecutive annual increase. And since 2018, farmland in WA has more than doubled, which is absolutely extraordinary. Never happened before. Well, it actually has happened before, but it has been, maybe we could talk about that later, it has retraced. But the statistics, uh, you need to look behind the, the veil sometimes. And there was a, a skew towards a lot more smaller property sales last year in the southwest corner. So the median land price is skewed more that direction. In fact, the long-term trend in Broadacre is for a reduction of the number of uh, transactions. So that is on a declining long-term. And and also the area of farmland traded actually fell by 37% to only 331,000 hectares. It's quite small historically. So that sort of reflects the trend towards the southwest, which is more a higher number of smaller area sales, but of higher value per hectare, and that contributes to that significant increase in the median for the state. Yeah, Paul. To just unpack that a little bit more, so there's a couple of functions I'm explaining. So is that because there is obviously people over the, we've been consolidating in farmland for decades. Yes. So there's there's less buyers in the market mm-hmm. I assume. But this move towards the southwest is that people from lower rainfall areas buying down south or is it a different dynamic as well? There's a there's a number of variables there. One is people from further out in the wheat belt heading heading west seeking a higher or a perceived high degree of, um, of of yield consistency. There's an external, in particular, institutional and high net wealth in, uh, investors, and they're investing in those areas substantially. And then, of course, there are neighbouring farmers who wish to expand their holdings, and part of the reason for that is that in the last half a dozen years or so, farming's been very profitable. It's attracting a lot of youngsters into the ag science, the agribusiness degrees, and a lot of youngsters looking... Um, girls and boys are coming home as well, which is marvellous for the sector. And so farmers are expanding because of uh, economies of scale reasons and succession planning reasons as well. Yeah, for a while there, we thought that we were going to have no one come home to take over farm properties, but it seems to have done a cycle and farming seems to be something people want to get back into these days. So we are getting a rush of new blood into the industry, like you said. So that's that's Excellent. great. Puts pressure on all those families to to expand though now, doesn't it, Paul? <laughs> well, it does. And um, and this probably gets back to your original question, David, about this current coming selling season. And every market is, in fact, cyclical. And no market is linear. Nothing goes up consistently without a, um, retracing from time to time. And high land prices... Uh, in fact, while they might be enjoyed by farmers now, unless they're looking to buy, um, it's also over the horizon we need to remember that higher land prices generally have a, an adverse impact on the, uh, the farming generation in terms of future succession planning costs. And so the reason I think this selling season will be slightly different to, say, last year's is that there, those... Sort of meteoric increases in land prices, I expect, will 
certainly not maintain that level of increase. There's not an enormous amount of depth in many shires. There's been only a small number of businesses expanding. And so we need to be aware of the depth of buy support as well. And in some shires, that's very deep and in other shires, less so. We also need to be aware that the uh, institutional investors, they're still very keen by and large, particularly the active investors, less so the passive buy and lease, because the lease costs are getting um, uh, at their expected yield hurdles are getting too high for the person that takes all the risk uh, to sustain. So, but I think also from a supply side, there's a there's quite a number of uh, conversations occurring about how long will these good prices last, and maybe maybe it might be time to list a property for maybe a baby boomer who's retiring with no um, the next generation isn't coming back to the farm, and you know for that reason, I think there will be a little bit more supply this year. And that's evidenced by the fact that in the Farm Weekly or in the rural press, there's been a lot more advertisements in June and so far in July for farmland uh, for sale, whereas traditionally the selling season really, an advertising season kicks off in August. So we're starting to see properties being brought to market earlier, which might be a sign of um, more supply to come. Yeah, in in the last few years, there seemed to be, when I was talking to farmers on the ground, they were saying, you know, a lot of the properties weren't even getting to listing. Mm. They were almost sold over the fence, a lot of them. So the fact that there is probably people listing now might hint towards supply, do you think, Paul? Yeah, quite likely. Uh, I mean, there's also some macro um, forces too, if we could touch on that. I mean, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, it's evident to everybody in this sector that there's a finite fixed supply of of arable land, it's very inelastic. We're seeing competition for productive land um, being taken into non-productive operations such as carbon sequestration, for example, and that reduces the uh, the amount of land available for arable farmers to expand. It's been until very recently, since the 1990s, when the Reserve Bank cash rate was 17% in, the, in 1991, there's been a whole generation of farmers that have only ever seen um, reducing interest rates until the last few months. So, and a low cost of capital inflates the value of capital assets. The extent to which we'll see a reversal of that will be will be quite interesting. So let's drill down on those drivers. So you've mentioned a few drivers you've talked about. You know, everyone always thinks there's foreign activity, which there is a little bit, but we're talking about supply and demand and, com- and commodity. So let's drill down on a few of those um, drivers of, of these prices, Paul. So let's touch on the – let's get the obvious one off the table. So foreign activity. Yeah. So is the fact that Australian farming land prices – so when those investors from, you know, around the globe are coming in and looking at land in Australia, is it being compared – on a like a yield per hectare or a yield per millimetre rainfall globally, like does that have a pressure? Do you think on any, or does that drive any of the pricing? You know, it's relative pricing. It certainly does in terms of the the exchange rates. A key driver of that, the, the sovereign sovereign risk is um, very low in Australia. Having said that, the government, federal government, has uh, just recently doubled the application fee for foreign investment review board investments into uh, into certain Australian assets and uh, and farmland um, incurs that increase as well. So they're, they're certainly key drivers. I think in terms of millimetres of, of kilos of grain per millimetre of rain, 
it's not really on the radar so much given that moisture constraints are more of an issue domestically than they are overseas. So look, they're, they're certainly big, big drivers. And I think we need to remember that if like land might seem expensive because we, we have an anchoring, what's referred to as an anchoring bias. So psychologically, we, we always reference our, our opinions and perspective to what has happened and we're sort of anchored to the past in terms of that relativity. The, the benchmark seems to be these days that, and excuse the mixed metaphors here, that for every tonne per hectare of, say, wheat yield, the price of land will be $1,000 an acre. That okay. might be a little bit of a contortion. So, Paul, that's one of the drivers. So we're talking technology there. So I know you're, you've got a bit of land out east, and so the tech out there has really made that land a lot more valuable than it maybe was 10 or 20 years ago. Mm. So, to, And that's happened across the, or the, literally the grain belt, and I don't know so much in horticulture and then in, and in the livestock areas, but, you know, that ability to get more production per hectare is, is is what you're saying is certainly a driver there. It is. I think, though, we need to look at it. Markets generally tend to overshoot one way and then overshoot the next. The pendulum sort of rarely sits in the middle. The prices that are that the high rainfall land, you know, 500 mil land, etc., is, uh, is what what they're selling for at the moment, has it exhibits a very very strong bias in terms of perceived production certainty. Mm. Now that sort of runs off the rails when when a wet year occurs, for example. Like last year, firstly in the low rainfall, there's a there's a substantial discount for for the perceived production risk. So in either case, quite remarkably, in either case, whether investing in high rainfall land and paying a premium or low, rain, low rainfall land and achieving a discount, in either case, the investor or the owner, the operator needs to have some method of achieving durable outperformance of yield. And to make that investment for whatever reason, and they're conflicting reasons, to, to make them worthwhile. If I could use my example of low rainfall investment, I've got farmland at 2J as well as in the northeastern wheat belt, low rainfall area there, is that, is that the, the system of achieving outperformance in that area, which is only 200 mil growing season rainfall land, is, is a wheat fallow rotation close to very good quality lime pits. Um, all the land's had six tonne to the hectare of lime, then it's been incorporated and compaction gotten rid of um, with a Terraland renovator and then goes into a wheat fallow rotation. And the yields that we're achieving out of that, I say we because the land is share farmed, I'm, I'm not the operator, I'm a share farmer, uh, landowner and share farmer is is uh, is most satisfactory. So, Paul, I want to drill down on that. This I heard this concept the other day called internal growth, and I love this idea. This idea, and now a lot of farmers, especially grain farmers across Australia, had a, an absolute ripper year last year, yeah. and have got probably the healthiest balance sheets they've had in quite a while. So. You know, the temptation is obviously to use some of that to get a bit more land and um, improve our machinery, etc. But it's 
it. Um, to quote my father when I came home from university, Paul, you can make a lot of very dumb decisions with money in your pocket. And so I'm, I'm trying to work out. So, you know, how should we probably think about this investment? You know, we may have some spare capital. We've got some room in our balance sheet. Buy land, invest in land. You're just talking about investment in your soil then. So is that a form of internal investment? And how do we evaluate or how does a as a, a farmer evaluate those those uh, return on investment, I suppose? Look, most most investment decisions, whether it's purchasing land or or remediating land, um, if I could use that term, aren't really approached with specific investment goals in mind. And look, over the long term, investment in land and the appreciation of that land has produced most of the wealth, family farming balance sheets. But to use a point, to get back to the remediation there is, uh, I've had uh, quite a number of discussions with prospective acquirers of land in um, the last year and, in fact, last week, and said, well, if you need to pay that sort of money to capture another hectare of land, then simply the stamp duty on that farm you're looking at buying, you would be able to, because that's stamp duty is post-tax, if you convert that to a pre-tax number, you could apply, it might be one and a half tonnes of a hectare of lime or two tonnes of a hectare of lime over your whole existing operation, which is going to improve your yields a lot more and you'll make more money as a business without taking on any of the risk. And, you know, people, that type, that, that's one example. Another one is that there's been some excellent technology in terms of the the refinators, you know, people are gleaning a lot more yield and a lot more productivity, productive area out of their existing holdings. And part of that's driven by the very high cost of, uh, of expansion. They're focusing then inwards to make sure they're getting, extracting all the juice out of their existing holdings rather than looking over the fence and, and perhaps incurring diseconomies of scale, which, which is quite a real phenomenon as well, often ignored. So what's the metric there, Paul? So you're looking at family. So you're looking at, I suppose we look at two things. There's size or hectares, there's yield there and there's price. But then there's also essentially net return or profit. And, you know, they, they don't always work in the same direction as each other, do they? And it's, uh, so as a, as a farmer, so how do you look at that, that equation? So, you know, you've got obviously yield and area has always been pretty sexy, but it's not always always profitable apart from the natural appreciation and land values so how do you think people should be looking at that equation essentially as a let's say this a family farm really (laughs) that's the million dollar question i think look throughout my career the business case for for expansion has always been marginal it's always been difficult to justify at at the time but with the benefit of hindsight, it's always been a truly inspired and courageous decision that's guaranteed the future or, you know, uh, improved the prospects of not only the farming family but the retiring generation and the non-farming heirs. It's been a um, it's been a masterstroke. Very risky at the time and very difficult to source the capital at the time, quite often, but invariably it's worked. Look, I think it... It's often as simple, David, as if people can access the capital to acquire nearby land, that's what they do. Leasing has had a has had a chequered record, and it's often been um, short term rather than five year leases. And now 
you know, some leases are going out for 10 years. And if we look to the UK and those areas, they're, they're intergenerational leases, which makes a lot of sense because then people farm them as their own. But in terms of certainty of tenure, there's no substitute for owning the land. And that's the way that most people, for obvious reasons, would prefer to go if they can find the land to acquire and access the capital to buy. Paul, because you know the stats that we both talked about earlier on about that return on you know that return on investment for farmland, you know eight point four percent over twenty years. So you're sitting there and you are a I don't know a retiring farmer and you are looking at that and you think, well, if I sell my land, I'm going to be investing in shares or property and I'm not going to get the return I'm getting out of it if I just leave it. Do you think we might move towards? Like you said, that European more towards that European model where people start holding their areas and maybe opt for these long-term lease-type structures, and so further constrict supply as opposed to just putting it on the market. That's certainly been the case, particularly with the ultra-accommodative monetary policy settings of a 0.1% cash rate. Not only was that turbocharging asset values, so capital gain from not selling land, but also if the farmer who was contemplating selling could get a 4%, say, triple net yield instead of 0.1% in the bank, then um, then that's a win-win, a higher cash return plus, plus capital growth. As interest rates normalise, I think we'll see probably less of that, David, and that's why I say there'll be more supply coming to the land because that, that sort of balancing act will, will tend to equalise or moderate, if not tip the other way. I think... If I could just move on to monetary policy and the impact that that has on farmland. I'm just looking at some uh, value of general data, which unfortunately has been discontinued. But land, as I mentioned earlier, or any market is cyclical. To go back to 1979, land prices, are looking at you know various shires in the wheat belt, doubled to about 1982. And then they halved again back to 1986. Now, why did that happen? Two reasons. Before financial market deregulation, there was a fixed amount of capital which was allocated to the ag sector. Now, and when that capital was exhausted, there was no more supply. People, you know, businesses fail when they run out of access to working capital, full stop. So when you run out of access to capital because of RBA constraints, that was it. Since 83, when deregulation occurred, land prices doubled again to the late, late 80s. And then they halved again with 20% interest rates in the early 90s. Since then, land prices have gone up consistently, except for periods around the millennium, around 06, 07, and around 2009. And the the issues there where they flatlined were that there was a millennium drought, 06, 07 drought in the Northern Wheat Belt, and then the savage inverse terms of trade in 2009 when farmers paid decile 10 input costs not dissimilar to this year, and received decil one uh, grain prices at harvest. So in each of those, there were very poor trading conditions. And instead of land being sold under pressure, farmers took on more debt. They had the balance sheet to be able to do that, and they had the understanding of their banks and post-financial markets deregulation, the availability of capital was high. So... And I think that's more and more a feature as we have. My, my rule of thumb is that around, you know, a third to 40% of businesses close their doors every decade. So 
as time goes by, a lot of the smaller businesses eventually end up selling because they're too small. They don't have the balance sheet to compete in the expansion market. The cost of machinery replacement becomes becomes unbearable and there's not much of a machinery contracting business in WA to support that, to support um, non-ownership of machinery. So what happens is there's fewer and fewer, better and better capitalised businesses. And when adverse terms of, or trading conditions occur, those businesses, unless they're terribly over-leveraged, have got the wherewithal to access adequate working capital to see them through another two or three years of, of, uh, of poor or modest report. So we're talking about a whole lot of drivers here of price. So we've obviously got supply and demand you're talking about, so just the pure availability. And, and what you're mentioning is even though we, we're getting this consolidation across the country, but as, they, as we consolidate, you actually end up having fewer and fewer buyers as well. Mm. So, you know, so it's an interesting, I don't know, it's an interesting growth chart there where you get less and less buyers in the same area competing for less and less land and, and how that may impact price. And that's a very major driver of price. It is the case where the buyers know that once that land is bought, it's highly improbable that that land will resurface on the market, which encourages them, the buyers, to throw the book at that the opportunity, for want of a better term, and, uh, and hope that, that they're the successful party. Now, if a business post-acquisition has a modest level of borrowings and therefore a lower risk profile, then it doesn't particularly matter in the long term what the price of that land was purchased for. Because, as you all know, most land purchases are, in, of, are of an intergenerational nature, whether that's for the family farm or whether it's a, an institution investing on behalf of a super fund that has multiple generation investment horizons as well. So the, the initial cost, yes, it has a big big impact on, on return on investment, but really, as we've seen with people buying land, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, with the benefit of hindsight, it always appears to be very good value. Well, we experienced that ourselves, like you said, Paul. I think when Rob and I bought yes. the block behind us, we thought we had done our shit. We we thought we'd paid so much, it was ridiculous. And 20 years, it seems like the cheapest land I think we could have ever bought. So, yeah, it's, um, yeah, time makes a big difference, doesn't exactly. it? So, intergenerational, I want to touch on that a bit. So, Another one of the drivers of land price. So having, like you said, we're getting a really enthusiastic young generation coming through ag now, which is nice to see. Does having that generation come through that's committed to, you know, the journey probably encourage, do you think, that multi-generational approach? So taking, you know, willingness to take on really large parcels of land, which the debt associated with that, which is in some cases maybe even multi-generational debt. Do you think that could is a driver in the in the decision process? In some families? It most definitely is because if there were no heirs coming back to or trust beneficiaries coming back to the family business, quite often there's no motivation for that to be kept or certainly there's no motivation or little motivation for it to be expanded um, if it was just going to be leased out in the future or sold in the near future. So that's um, succession or the future vi- ongoing viability of the farming business is certainly driving expansion. However, if the debt structure of the business post-acquisition is such that the prospects for debt reduction are minimal, 
then maintaining a high debt level has adverse implications for succession planning for parents and non other non-farming siblings in the foreseeable future. So it's a it's a it's a very delicate delicate path and needs to be focused on the longer term implications, not just the uh, opportunity that exists or may exist. And that's a, that's a good point on succession. Um, I heard I was talking to uh, another person a couple of months ago, and they mentioned the same thing. You this thirty, what did we say, thirty six percent increase in land prices has created a massive succession headache. So, yes, because because if you've just been through a succession against, and let's assume you've got two siblings who have decided to pursue an urban career path, mm. their chunk of the pie is certainly not going up 36% a year, and um, which can create a few headaches for families, I'm assuming. Do you think the fact that there might be some headwinds into future purchases because families may need to address that, you know, that perceived or real imbalance, do you think? Yes, that might be a topic for another conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure we can... Uh, no, no, we won't unpack that, all that. But look, David, do you mind if I uh, perhaps venture to a contrarian approach as to land? And uh, a cynic might suggest that increase in farmland is nothing but a, a bubble, a debt-funded, debt fueled bubble. People use the Ponzi scheme uh, of word. It's a bit out of context. But if we go back to the early 90s when, as I mentioned, interest rates paid by farmers were in the vicinity of 20%. Since then, national debt was about, rural debt was about $12 billion. Any idea what it was, say, this time last year? I reckon you must be getting nearly triple that. have to be up above 50, I reckon. <laughs> Try about $87 billion, David. Whoa. So what we can see is that, yes, asset values have increased enormously over that time, but also so has the so has the pressure in the tyres to pump it up that level. So people, mm. you know, someone sitting on the sidelines might say, well, this is just a bubble waiting to pop. But yes, agriculture is a very, very capital intensive. The ownership of land and operating of land is an extremely capital intensive pursuit. However, also over that period, in lockstep with the increase in land values and in lockstep somewhat oddly with the increase in agri-sector debt is the value of agri-sector output. Now, what that means is that why has debt gone up at the same time when output, the value of output has gone up just as by the same um, degree? Well, when farmers sell, part of the reason, sorry, I'll go back a step, Part of the reason that production and productivity has improved is that less productive, smaller businesses um, have gone by the wayside. They've been bought out by generally larger, better capitalised uh, businesses with better access to uh, technology, soil remediation, etc., etc. And and also we've seen uh, we have seen that. With that value of production increase, farmers have got more money and a greater propensity to be able to expand and a better balance sheet to back. Mm -hmm. So 
Yes, it could be argued that the increase in land values is a is is something of a debt fueled bubble. But when people sell, when farmers sell their land, they're withdrawing equity from the sector, and by and large, it's being replaced by debt to by the purchasing family to, to acquire that asset. So that's why it's happened from a structural point of view. But I, I, look, I don't perceive that as a as an existential risk to the sector because of the. The, the relatively small number of participants now, the demand from ex, with ex, from external um, investors as well, and and the professionalism of the sector is um, has never been better in. So what you're saying, Paul, is the yes, the sector as a whole is a lot more leveraged than it's ever been, yes. but the players that are left. Are better. Let's just cut to it. They're you know historically much better operators, mm-hmm. so they can handle that level of leverage because they can probably drive um, profitability year on year a lot more reliably than they and then maybe the sector as a whole maybe could have ten or twenty years ago. Without question. Uh, Without question. Yeah. yeah. So you know this sort of leverage twenty years ago across a sector might have been highly risky, mm. but now it's manageable. Less so, substantially more manageable, subject to continuity of funding lines. Uh, yeah. So you know then let's before we go, we otherwise we'll talk all day. Any other headwinds can you see, Paul? You know, like because we're always looking. You know, we've come off ten years of just incredible. Or you know, especially in the West, not so much on the East. The East has had a tougher decade than the West has. But um, like you said, there's a generation in farming now that have never known high interest rates, never had, in some places like in the West, haven't had many, many bad seasons, have had decent commodity prices. You know, can you see, is there headwinds that these, you know, these operations need to be aware of? That or Yes. Uh, one headwind... Um, and it's again comes back to monetary policy settings that I alluded to earlier. Not only will interest rates or the cost of capital increase, I don't know how much, um, I'm not going to speculate on that, but the other one is quantitative easing or printing money. Yep. Now, in late 2020, the Reserve Bank said it would, um, QE would be uh, $100 billion with five to 10 years maturity. So that funding has been put into the economy to turbocharge liquidity. Now, that has been a driver of, of external investors coming into ag because they wanted it, they were seeking uh, protection against inflation from all that, um, all that monopoly money coming into yeah. the economy. Now, when, those, when that QE turns to QT or Q tightening, as it will, that will have adverse impacts on A, money supply, on B, interest rates, and on C, foreign exchange. And the combination of those three changing in an adverse direction more or less simultaneously uh, will be a headwind. And we never, we can't predict the future. You can't, I can't, no one can. But, you know, you know that could cause an easing or, a, you know, a stop the steep rise at least maybe in prices at some point. You know, it's got to stop climbing at some point, doesn't it? it? Does. So, yeah. But you're saying, what I, what I like about this conversation, Paul, is I like, yes, 
debt, debt levels are high, land prices are high, but in general, the like what you said at the end there, you know, the the farmers who are still in the game, and we, you know, we do lose a lot of farmers every decade, but generally, you know, the more productive or the better operators buy the other ones. So the sector is pretty healthy from a you know business point of view. So it can it can you know can handle the pressures of this these prices and these land prices and and, and continue to grow. I, I agree strongly, and um, and I think that uh, look traditionally, you know, land has been a store of wealth for wealthy people. I don't envisage that changing in the foreseeable future, and my rationale for that is based around the four pillars. Getting back to your point, David, of sustainable competitive advantage. And they are people, processes, resources, and technology. Now, technology with automation, variable rate, um, all of the things, we can't imagine what's around the corner. is going to be very helpful for for the ag sector and, and land values, the underlying asset. You know, the resource itself, it's increasingly productive with remediation strategies, et cetera, and those sorts of strategies. The processes, like the professionalism of the sector now um, has never been better and with a lot of kids enrolled in ag science, ag business now at, at uni, it's only going to get better, which is wonderful to see. But most of all, it comes back to the people. And it's been, uh, as I mentioned, it's been, and you mentioned, it's been very profitable in recent years, attracting many young people back into the tertiary sector and back to farm businesses. And that optimism and energy, I think, uh, bodes very well for the uh, the broadacre sector for the foreseeable future. That's great, Paul. Now, before Paul, I always ask him before we uh, leave you, because that's been an incredibly interesting conversation. Now, we all have a, a life outside of ag, and you and I were talking about yours before we got on air. So I always like to let people know that Paul's not just... Um, you're an obsessive farmer and farm and farm business advisor. But what do you do when you're not obsessing about agriculture, Paul? Well, I like to go diving and um, I love catching crayfish and I'm allergic to them. You might be interested to know. So, <laughs> so, you, so you like catching them and giving them to friends and family? I do, David. So if you're in the vicinity, <laughs> drop by. I'll, I'll probably got a few in the freezer. In fact, I do. I also, uh, I'm a surf lifesaver as well. So I do like rowing surf boats, which is a strange form of self-torture uh, and I like going camping and a little bit of surfing as well yeah and you live in a very beautiful part of the world as well so um, yeah it's very good well Paul thank you very much for your time again uh, uh, as expected very interesting conversation um, with some great contrarian views which I enjoy from you all the time um, and thanks very much for you know giving your time to the podcast today great to be with you David much appreciated thank you okay thank you goodbye as always, if you'd like to know more about AgriMaster Farm Business Management Software and Services, you can find us at www.agrimaster.com.au or find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram. If you like this episode, please share it on social media or directly with a friend and let's make farm business great together.